Welcome to the Behavior Speak podcast. Now, here's your host, Ben Ryman. In today's episode, I chat with Miko Van Speck and Philip Lerner in two individual conversations. Miko and Phil are both autistic self-advocates and directors on the Ontario Autism Coalition. I hope you enjoy our conversations. Today, uh, I've been really excited for this interview uh, and uh, happy to finally get uh, Miko Van Speck on on today. Uh, for those, I'm sure a lot of folks out there that are listening will know who Miko is. I uh, do a lot of Canadian interviews on the podcast and uh, Miko, in my mind, is probably the most well-known in Canada that I know of, uh, autistic advocate. Uh, and we're going to dive deep into kind of what that all means and what that's about. Uh, but first off, Miko, thanks for being on the podcast today. Thank you for having me. So awesome. So Miko's from, uh, you're, you're based in Toronto, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, Miko, why don't you just tell us, uh, you know, a little bit about yourself. You're, I know you're, he's only, Miko's only 26 years old and, and he's done so much for the autism community in Ontario and so much that uh, his, his work is starting to uh, stretch across the country uh, thanks to uh, the internet and all those fine channels. Um, Miko, why don't you tell us a bit about kind of what you do in terms of autism advocacy, the organizations you're involved with, that sort of thing, how long you've been doing it, kind of how you got into it, that sort of story. Sure. So I got involved with the Ontario Autism Coalition when I was so I got into advocacy uh, back in 2012, back when our former premier Kathleen Wynne was sworn in. And the reason I got into it really was, I didn't actually mean to get into it. It was kind of a happy accident. And what happened was uh, I was looking to make new friends and my mom said, why don't you try and um, uh, reach out to Facebook groups and see if you can make new friends. So that's when I found the Ontario Autism Coalition and joined looking to make new friends. And I started seeing like really cool posts and commenting on them and and finding my own posts to kind of, um, I guess, post in the group. And then uh, the vice president at the time, Laura uh, Kirby McIntosh, she uh, reached out to me and said, hey, like, we really like what we're seeing from you. I'm doing this podcast. Do you want to come on? So I said, sure. So we met up in person, did the podcast, and then we kind of just kind of stayed in touch. And she wanted me on to, to be on the board of directors, but I kind of was like, mm, I don't know what all that entails. I don't know like if I'm like, you know, ready or if I'm even like qualified. And she's like, oh, you don't really need qualifications. We're just looking to add self-advocates to the board. I was like, okay, sure. And then, yeah, that's kind of how it started. And then we started doing rallies. And then uh, me and a group of parents from the Ontario Autism Coalition started doing, uh, we started going to Queen's Park, which is the, the Ontario legislator, every day for two years for question period. Wow. and uh, trying to get meetings. And we got one meeting with the premier and that didn't go over well. That's all I'm going to say on that matter. Okay. Right on. So, uh, and you're still involved with them now? Um, I've taken a personal leave for personal reasons, but like I haven't fully left. I'm just taking a leave of absence. But you, you, you have been a board member up until recently, yes? Well, I'm still on the board. I'm just taking a leave of absence. Gotcha. And so when did you when did you kind of join the board? Uh back in 2015, end of 2015. End of 2015. So you've been you've been on you've been on the board for six years now. That's amazing. Yeah. And so 
just uh, we're gonna, probably using some different terms here and we'll be kind of broadcasting to folks outside of Ontario. What do you mean by what, what, what do you mean by self-advocate? What's a self-advocate? So I'm someone who I'm an, uh, I have autism and I advocate for not only myself, but for other people with autism. Gotcha. Okay, cool. Um, and uh, what, what kinds of things are you advocating for in terms of folks with, for folks with autism? We're advocating for, you know, the government to give kids needs-based therapy and funding for that needs-based therapy. And they came out with this horrible program called the, the Childhood Budget Program. And that was just a complete disaster. Mm. You either got like a $5,000 check, a $10,000 check, or a $20,000 check. Okay. And then we put enough pressure that they did a cabinet shuffle for a new minister. And then they decided to switch the name to try and make the public think that they had put in a new program and they called it the one-time interim budget program. Okay. And then eventually in February of this year, they announced a new program, but it's a pilot program that's starting with 600 kids that are randomly picked that are going to get into a supposed full-time therapy program with the right amount of funding. And we have 45,000 kids on the wait list. So 600 is not going to do squat basically. And they want to run this 600 kids in this pilot program for one year and we're going into an election okay. like summer of 2022 so yes. so hoping for a change yeah yeah good and what does what do you mean by what's needs-based therapy what's that about so needs-based therapy is basically therapy that's based on every individual child's need as we all know everyone is so different so each kid with autism is different it's like no two kids are the same so basically with needs-based programs, we want the program to be based on each individual kid's needs rather than mm. just one size fits all. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. Uh, and so right now, that's not the way we're doing things in Ontario? Nope, not even close. So is it, it's more what, like kind of the, the cookie cutter approach, I guess? or It's basically the one size fits all, which we size. all know is not, it's not a good program. Gotcha. And, and this needs-based therapy, is this... Uh, what kind of therapy is this? Uh, it's ABA slash IBI. ABA slash IBI. And so that's so so that's that intensive behavior intervention of ABA kind of thing. And so, applied behavior analysis and as applied well. Behavior yeah. Analysis. Okay. And so, being autistic, you're, you're you have a you know a, a unique perspective on you know a lot of things uh, that uh, you know that folks that are not aren't autistic wouldn't have. Um, there seems to be a lot of uh, discussion kind of right now, um, uh, and there has been for the past few years, you know, around the, the idea that ABA, uh, you know, maybe needs to be changed in some way, needs some reform, needs some updates. Um, and there's been sort of some folks that have said, you know, that ABA is in, is is essentially abuse. Um, and that's yeah. kind of come yep. some, some folks that are, that are that are autistic and that sort of thing what's it's what's your it's take autistic yeah it's autistics that have had a bad experience unfortunately mm-hmm. and when i've sat down with these people i've tried to explain from my perspective of being like okay i understand you had a bad experience but i had a bad experience with a few of my teachers that were abusive towards me does that make all teachers bad no it makes those teachers bad mm-hmm. so does that make all therapists bad no it makes the therapists that you guys had bad you're mm-hmm. a, a a lot of amazing therapists that I know that just want what's best for the kid. They don't even want to, like, they would never harm a kid. Never. Mm-hmm. Like, they're the 
most gentle, most kind, loving, caring, accepting people I know. And so what, what kinds of, you know, and you're, you're not going to obviously name any names and I wouldn't want you to, we want respect the confidentiality of the yeah. folks you're talking to, but what kinds of harms are these folks telling you about that they experienced? Like physical restraints and like, um, not just physical abuse, but also verbal, like getting yelled at and screamed at by the therapists and, mm. um, yeah. So, and I, I feel for these people I do, but again, it comes back to just, just because they had a bad experience, does that make all therapists bad? No, it makes those therapists bad. Just like with my experience with school, does it make, you know, all teachers bad? No, it made those specific teachers that treated me badly bad. Mm-hmm. And it seems like at least, you know, and this is sort of over the last year or so where with COVID and kind of everyone's online now and not a lot of people are talking face-to-face and in person, but there seems to be sort of a lot of, a lot of messages on social media, you know, around sort of, you know, from, from folks from autistics around, you know, this kind of abusive idea, but we're not, we don't seem to be hearing the voices of folks that are autistic that maybe have your perspective. Any idea why we don't kind of hear those folks talking to? Uh, I think a lot of them are too shy and maybe they're scared that they're going to get, you know, called be like um, backstabbers or be called out saying, oh, you betrayed your fellow autistics for being mm. for this therapy. And I think they're kind of scared of the backlash they could get. Right, 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 yeah. And But, but it doesn't seem to sort of bother you too much to talk about it. I mean, it does get me kind of angry because, you know, therapy is meant to help kids. It's not meant to change them. It's meant to teach them skills like not to run into the middle of the road or right. not to, like, you know, smear poop on the wall or not to um you know lash out and to be able to use their words or if they aren't able to use their words to use like pecs or sign language or any kind of other form of communication yeah have you had any aba yourself or no i didn't i had speech and occupational therapy speech and occupational therapy gotcha and and you found you got some good stuff out of that oh yeah it helped it helped me to really um gained a lot of social skills and verbal skills and i only became verbal at age five but i had echolalia from age three to age five before i started talking in full sentences okay and do, and do you remember that do you remember what it was like to have that to, to kind of speak in echolalia i basically would just like kind of copy whatever whatever other people around me said almost like a parrot right and but but just sort of recall kind of you know, I mean, obviously you're only three to five years old, so it's it, it, understandable if you don't remember all this. I mean, I don't remember anything I was doing when I was four, but um, do you kind of remember kind of what was going through your head when you're repeating those statements? I just thought I was being like everyone else. Like I thought I was kind of looking or not looking, but more seeming normal and like I knew what I was doing, even though I really didn't. Gotcha. You're just sort of trying to kind of, you you, you saw other people saying words and so you thought well if i say words maybe i'll fit in better kind of thing yeah exactly yeah, but you didn't really know kind of what they meant or how or yeah the whole process yeah. there gotcha yeah right on what other kinds of things do you, are, are you involved in do you, do you work um i'm working part-time in the film industry but it's very spotty i've had shifts here and there but not a whole lot and that's because of covid i assume yeah, well, I work with my dad, but he doesn't always need me. So my dad's been getting a lot more work than I do. He only uh, calls me in once every few weeks. Gotcha. So mostly I just sit at home and 
do advocacy work online, which I don't get paid for, but I have done like university guest lectures before the pandemic. Nice. And I also did some training of the Ontario Provincial Police and York Region Police for how to help people with autism in crisis. Oh, that's awesome. So tell me more about that. What, what was that? What was that like? What, what were you We teaching? ran workshops through um, the police training workshop was through CAMH here in Toronto. Right. Uh, Louis Bush was actually the one that got me to uh, got me involved in that. Oh, nice. CAMH, that's the center for for mental health and addiction. Right. Right. Yeah, nice. Straight on. And so what kinds of things were you teaching the police teaching the police? how to better, you know, help people with autism and not shoot them and how to talk them down from them having a meltdown and how to get them to kind of get on our level in terms of like trying to understand what we're going through when we're having a meltdown. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and did did, did you find that these folks, these police officers, was this all new information for them? Oh, yeah. Yeah. It was all new information, but they seem to really take to it and they really seem to really want to try and understand so they can be better at what they do. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. And so did they, how did you kind of explain, like, how do you, how do you, how do you explain, you know, the idea of, uh, I think some people think they're the same thing, but I've been hearing recently that they're kind of different. Like what's the difference between a meltdown and a tantrum? So tantrum is typically when you don't get what you want, whereas a meltdown for an autistic people, for an autistic person can be, like they're sensory overloaded or if they're nonverbal, they have like a stomach ache or they're feeling sick, but they can't verbalize. Right. And so that's their way of showing that something's not right. Right. So it, it seems almost like it's, it's, it's uh, like almost like there's some choice in the tantrum. Yeah. And, and in the meltdown, it's like, I'm overloaded either sensory or pain or, or I'm it's feeling a, sick, and so sick, it's kind right. of like a warning sign almost. Yeah, that, that, yeah, yeah. And so, because I think this kind of speaks to some of the some of the talk around reform and how you know folks could do things better. Um, what's what's sort of the best the best way to kind of help someone who's sort of in meltdown mode? Just you know, talk to them softly and let them know that you're here and that you want to hear them out and that you know, you're not there to harm them. Uh, you just want to try and figure things out to make things easier and better for them. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, one of the other goals I have yeah. once the whole pandemic is over and once the world opens back up is I really want to, um, uh, train border guards and doctors and nurses in hospitals mm. as well. Like, and, uh, I want to do more police training with all police forces across Ontario and, um, yeah, I have so many ideas for what I want to do once um, once the world opens back up. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, I think I think and I think I think who better to teach folks about autism than someone who's autistic, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Are you the only autistic person on the on the board of the OAC? No, there's two other people. I'm not going to name them for no, no, reasons, of course but there's not. Uh, there was three other, but another one uh, resigned. Right. Uh, but there's now three of us on the board. Right. And were you the were you the first or? Uh, no, I was actually the third. But then, so we had three of us. It was me and two females, and then yep. the two females have since left, and now it's me and two other males. So, what are some other things you kind of would like people to know about? You know, 
being autistic and 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 sort of teaching goals because this 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 program is kind of focused on you know and I'm happy to talk about anything don't get me wrong we don't have we, we could we could not talk about ABA at all but this program is kind of focused on ABA and it kind of you know BCBAs will be listening to kind of this program and so you know what are some things that would you know be really helpful for you know BCBAs out there that don't know you know a whole lot about sort of you know, maybe the autistic perspective, or maybe they're doing things that are potentially harmful, but they don't realize it because they just think they're doing their job. You know, what are some things that you 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 might like to share with those folks? Um, you know, you just have to be gentle with the kids, and you just have to, you know, talk to them as if they're a person and not see them as someone who's less than you or someone who may not be smart. We are intelligent; we just function in different ways, and. A lot of us have also sensory issues, like labels with clothing is a big sensory issue for mm. a lot of people. Not so much myself, but a lot of people with autism hate labels in their clothing, so their parents have to cut the labels out. Right. And and do you have any kind of specific sensory issues that are still kind of strong for you? Or uh, Yeah, so I can't wear jeans. I got really bad, like, hives around my waist. Wow. And uh, rashes, really bad rashes in my thighs. Um, I also sand, my feet can't touch sand, bare feet. Mm. It feels like daggers going into my feet. Wow. And also my skin, even like the, the, um, I'm not sure what you call it, but it's not the regular sunscreen. It's like sunscreen for people's sense of skin. Even mm. those ones, I break out in rashes. Oh, interesting. So, so I can't wear any sunscreen whatsoever. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And the, the and the thing is, I don't really get sunburned because I'm from South Africa, so my skin's used to the hot sun. Sure, so I don't really sure. get all that sunburned. Yeah, yeah. So you don't necessarily even need, you know, the sunscreen on. Which exactly. Is gonna, you know, you probably get more burned from the sunscreen than you would from the sun. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Um, what about other kinds of things, kind of sensory wise? I mean, there's. I think there's so many things that folks are taught in like ABA that. Um, you know, that you know, some folks are taught in ABA that, you know, sensory stuff is just kind of, uh, there, there's no evidence behind it or whatever, or, or there's, oh, there's evidence like there, there really is. If you talk to adults with autism, we will tell you we have sensory issues yeah. and we can describe them in great detail. Uh, like I just did with like all of my sensory issues and people, therapists need to be accepting that that is a real thing. And, that the child has sensory issues and everyone with autism has sensory issues. And for me also, I used to work for the Toronto transit commission mm -hmm. and I'd work 12, like 12 hour shifts. And I'd be at the busiest station in all of Toronto. Mm -hmm. And I'd be dealing with like 10,000 plus customers a day. Mm -hmm. And by the time I got home, my sensories were so overloaded that I'd have to go and sit in a dark basement by myself and not talk to anyone. And so what what do you mean by overloaded? Like what was going on for after like, 12 hours of sitting at the at the bus terminals and sitting around folks? It wasn't sitting. We had to stand the whole time. Or, or standing, like, yeah, yeah. It was like hearing all, like kind of rehearing all the noise and the background noise and the announcements and people's voices. And it was just a lot of overload. And it almost like gave me like a massive headache. Wow, wow. And, uh, and have you ever kind of learned how to sort of do anything with that or control that or filter it Sometimes out? Sometimes I feel like listening to music helps, yeah, but not yeah. all the time. And yeah. I realized it wasn't healthy for me because eventually I remember I was on my home, my way home from work um, 
on one of my last shifts and I actually ended up collapsing because of the sensory overload. Wow. If you're planning on collecting continuing education credits for this episode, you'll need to enter the three secret words at www.cbiconsultants.com. The first secret word is Ontario. And so how long when you'd come, you'd have your, you know, you'd have sensory overload after standing all, all day at the, at the, hearing all these noises and you come home and you kind of sit and sort of, what'd you do again? You'd come and sit in a, in a dark, quiet place. Is that the idea? In the basement. Yeah. The, and, and how long would you have to kind of be down there before you could kind of settle down and probably like two, three hours at least. Wow. That's amazing. And what were you doing for that whole period? Just, just sort of sitting and not moving and. I'd kind of fidget a little bit here and there, like fidget with my feet, like with my socks or like yeah. um, with my hair or like, I don't know, but I'd just like try and slowly get it to like tune out so I could go back to like normal in the sense of like being able to talk to people in my household without like getting a massive headache for sure and and, and i suppose were, are your folks pretty supportive they kind of understood what was going on and left you alone oh yeah and, big time yeah that's good and my brother was living at home at the time and he was also very supportive that's excellent that's excellent yeah you know because i think sometimes we're, we're trying to teach kids to kind of you know almost desensitize some of this stuff you know and and you know let's take miko and you know and and teach them to wear jeans you know and 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 get them to, or, or teach them, you know, to tolerate labels and those sorts of things. And what what do you think about kind of that approach to kind of sensory? I don't like that approach. I think that people need to be accepting of people with autism who have sensory needs. And even if it makes things a little bit harder, it's not the end of the world. And we we should be able to feel the things we feel without being judged or scrutinized. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Uh, just just kind of learning you know, kind of the focus on, on learning. I think, you know, the focus on a lot of the early intervention is, you know, learning things like, you know, uh, play skills or, or, or language or skills social or, skills or, or social yeah. skills and, or and, toilet training and yeah, like all of that. Yeah. And like, the, like, like sometimes things like that get left out, like, like toilet training, for example. And so, you know, or, or folks maybe don't learn it right away. And, and sort of then the thought is, is that, you know, if, if, if one isn't toilet trained, you know, they can't, you know, they can't function in life. They'll never be able to go out. They'll never be able to have friends. They'll never be able to do anything. Yeah, exactly. But that's not a hundred percent true. Cause I remember watching this one video uh, of this mom um, being interviewed about her son with autism and he'd work like one or two hours a day at the library, but he wasn't toilet trained. So eventually, he, like, he'd have to go home so she could change him. Right. And he would, like, sort books on the shelves for, like, two hours before he'd have to be picked up. Right. Because of risk of an accident, right? So, yeah. But it, they still can work. It just would be a lot harder. They'd only be able to work part-time versus working full-time. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think all that stuff needs to be sort of taught when they're young? Or, or can folks learn this stuff when they're older? I think they can learn it when they're older, but I believe in not rushing. I believe in letting the kid lead the way and the kid showing the parents and the therapist when they're ready. Yeah. Yeah. Is that kind of what you were doing or? Yeah. 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 What are some other kinds of, uh, you know, good 
you know, kind of kind of resources for folks to kind of, uh, you know, learn more about autism and autistics and that sort of thing? Um, there's a bunch of videos on YouTube. There's a bunch of movies and books that they could read. Um, my favorite book is by a nonverbal autistic woman who co-wrote the book with her dad, uh, Carly Fleischman. It's called Carly's Voice. Yeah. And it's authored by her and her father, Arthur Fleischman. Right. Um, also, another good one is uh, The Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. Oh, yeah, that is a good book. Yeah. Yeah. But there's also... Uh, the. I have the movie about Temple Grandin and her whole story. She's like the, the godmother of like autism advocacy and that movement. And so uh, I have the movie on her, but she also has a book as well. You can find both. I'm pretty sure on like eBay or Amazon or Craigslist or Kijiji. Yeah. But they're all really like amazing stories. Uh, what is it about Temple Grandin that resonates for you? For me, it's like she shows me that you know people with autism despite our challenges can still function in society even though we may need accommodations and that we're different not less yep yep also the one thing i recommend for parents who may be listening is yeah if your child once your child has autism and they're entering the school system you need to try and get them an iep which is called an individual education plan okay so they can have accommodations with work and with like for me i had uh, I could take a break and uh, and kind of walk around because I went to a small private school for the second my second high school, mm. and so walking around the halls it wasn't like walking around this huge building disturbing everyone. It was like this little corridor, and I could walk up and down it uh, to kind of get a break from the work because I also have ADHD, mm. and so I find it hard to sit still for too long. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, I, I I get that. I have ADHD too, so I know I know how that feels. For me, with my ADHD, if I try and sit still for too long, it feels like my skin is on fire not to move to extinguish it. Oh, wow. I haven't had that. That's 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 something for sure. Right on. Um, and you were talking about, you know, the videos and different things. Are there any kind of specific videos that are really good for folks to kind of watch? Um, yeah, there's... I can send you the links and then you can put it on... If you have a website or something, I can send you the links to the videos. Put them, put them uh, in the show notes. Yeah. Yeah. Right on, I can right send on. you them in Facebook Messenger after, but there's some videos that if you watch, like the first time I watched them, my mind was blown, like just complete mind blown. Yeah, 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 yeah. What, uh, anything else you kind of wouldn't mind just sharing with the audience that, you know, on the autistic perspective, you know, before we go? Just, you know, be gentle with people with autism and try and understand things from our perspective. And for therapists, really try and don't force the kids to do something they don't want to do. If they're not getting one thing one day, work on another thing that's maybe in their plan for for their whole, like, I guess they have, like, a chart of different things they're working on and try and work on something different. Like, if you force it, they're just going to, you're going to do more harm than good. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Don't force it. That's... So switch to, like, a different activity that they may find easier that specific day. Absolutely, absolutely. Right on. Well, that's cool. Anything else you want to share before we go? No, I think that's I think that's good. Cool. Well, thanks, Miko. No worries. Thanks for being on the show. No worries. Thanks for having me again. Awesome. Uh, today, I'm uh, honored to have uh, Mr. Phil Lerner on the podcast with me. Phil's a, a director, board member on the uh, Autis Ontario Autism Coalition, as well as a student at uh, University of Waterloo, uh, taking 
a very rare Bachelor of Mathematics program, which we don't seem to have in too many places. Waterloo is well known for their their, uh, STEM-type courses, so he's at a pretty prestigious university for for that kind of work, which is awesome. Uh, Thanks for being on with us, Phil. No problem. Thank you for having me. Wonderful. Uh, So, Phil... Uh, maybe we could just uh, start by, uh, you know, getting a little bit, uh, you know, your 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 biography, as it were, kind of, kind of how you, uh, you know, maybe, maybe any experiences you want to share growing up in terms of your of being autistic, but as well, you know, kind of how you got involved with the Ontario Autism Coalition and kind of what you do with them now. Well, absolutely. I'm just going to start with my general biography. Sure. So, yep, my name is Philip Blair. I am Bachelor of Mathematics, undergrad student, majoring in statistics, and also going for a computing minor. So, I was diagnosed with autism at a super early age of 18 months. That is early. And I actually had ABA from the age of two and a half to four. So my whole life, I was kind of hiding autism. I kind of saw it as a weakness. But I came into the fight when I was 16 years old, roughly, because the liberal government before this Ford government decided it would be a great idea to start cutting off ABA waitlists at the age of five. And I'm here thinking, are you insane? So that's how I kind of got roped in to the Ontario Autism Coalition, I started meeting more and more self-advocates. And just over a year ago, January 2020, after I've I've done some interviews and written an article, I was invited to join the Ontario Autism Coalition Board of Directors. And I am currently serving there as its youngest member. I'm the baby of the group. That's really cool. Wow. Okay. So what was that? What was the article that you wrote? It was called How ABA Changed My Life. Oh, interesting. It was just a quickie two-minute medium article. And uh, and what? Basically going through some of my ABA experiences and and a little bit about my opinions of ABA. Cool. Uh, well, while we're on it, did you want to share any thoughts on that? Sure. So for those who don't know, ABA is an extremely hot topic in the autism community with strong sides for and against it. I am on the for side and I have a very simple reason why. Mm-hmm. First off, it benefited me so much that I don't know how it could speak negatively of it. But I'm also going to make a comparison. Sure. When you have a problem with a teacher at school, like a teacher is not treating your kid well, what are things you can do to solve that problem? You can have a meeting with the teacher. I'm, I'm talking about if you're a parent in this situation. You can have a meeting with the teacher as well as the principal. You can request that your child switch classes. You can even request that your child switches schools. That's an extreme case. But no one is calling for demolishing the public school system. Anyone that's calling for the demolishing of ABA based on the experiences of one ABA therapist, it's the same, it's the same comparison. 
I think what 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 you're saying, and 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 I like that that analogy of the of the education system. Sort of, there are some people out there that claim, you know, that ABA widespread is you know bad or abusive. Lots of different terms have been used as sort of negative terms, where it may just be that they're it may be that their experience was maybe not good or more even horrible, depending on, you know, everyone can have their own experience, uh, but their experience was, was with one person or maybe, maybe a team or, or one particular behavior analyst or a couple of interventionists. Or even at the worst case, a particular provider. A particular provider for sure. Yeah. The, the whole, the whole company maybe is, has, has a lot of issues that needs to work on. And so that's that's horrible and a horrible experience for that person but that doesn't necessarily mean that the entire field is represented by that agency or that person or that interventionist and we shouldn't exactly and we shouldn't be condemning the whole field based on the practices of individuals exactly right no that makes sense yeah no that's, i appreciate i appreciate that perspective and so you did have some aba when you were a kid i think you said something like uh, was it 15 hours a week or something? That's correct. 15 and, and hours a week in our, uh, a year and a half. For a year and a half. And I think you finished when you're around, was it four years old? Is that what you said before? Yes. Yeah. And so, four years old. and so for me to even, for me to even ask you to sort of recall your experiences would maybe kind of a ridiculous question, no. unless you have an incredible no, memory no. of your childhood. Not particularly. All I remember was like a little desk at the top floor of my house, and I was just sitting at that little desk for my sessions. Right. And uh, but as far as you know, you don't you don't have you don't have nightmares. You don't have any you know bad memories no. in your head. Your parents don't talk about that awful person, and so no. on and so forth. And, and in fact, my I think, parents are still in touch with them. That's what I was. That's what I was going to say. I think you said that maybe you <laughs> they still keep in contact with your therapist, which is wonderful. Exactly. So, yeah, that's really cool. Um, one more ABA question, and, and you don't have to answer it if you don't want to, but I would like to hear, because I think even if there's, even if, even if say there isn't really anything, you know, inherently wrong with ABA as a field, you know, all, all fields can improve, right? You know, every, every, we all learn from things and we always get better and we always do things better. Just, just being autistic and kind of having that perspective is there anything that, you know, would be cool if ABA kind of thought more about, you know, and added more so to make it even more sort of person-centered or whatever? I don't know. I'm just, this is more of a question for me. I'm just curious. Always looking for good ideas. I am not sure. Just because everyone's experience of ABA is so individualized. Yep. I don't know what someone else might be working on that I didn't. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the things I suggest could very well already be in place. Good point. Yeah, we. It's hard to know if things, you know, and 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 yeah, and maybe not being a practitioner, you're not sure what sort of a general practice exactly. versus so an individual maybe you can practice. Tell me. Maybe I could. Well, I could try. A I mean, things that you're doing. I could try. I could try to think about it. So I have been following, you know, some of the the social media groups that are, you know, discussing um, not so much, you know, the you know, sort of getting rid of ABA altogether, but the, the groups, but the groups that are talking more about how we can improve. Um, some of them call it how we could reform. It doesn't really matter what the term is. Um, and things that I've heard a lot about are is is 
is maybe we could do a better job of uh, considering um, what's the word uh, like more sensory needs and thinking about that some more. And, and maybe some of the things that we do, you know, could don't take into account those sensory needs and therefore could be perceived as aversive by certain people because we don't realize what we're, you know, what we're interacting with because that person maybe can't tell us what they're feeling. Mm -hmm. So that's one thing I've heard a bit about. I do uh, have one question actually. Yeah, please. There is one thing that I've always found is a super important skill. And I don't know if ABA addressed it. Mm. Adaptability. Mm. That's a really good one. Yeah. That's a tough skill for some autistics. And I don't know if that's something ABA addresses at all. The second secret word is advocacy. You know, it, I, so here's what, ABA has a term. ABA has kind of, uh, they have seven sort of um, uh, principles that they kind of base all of their decisions on. It comes from one of our kind of original research papers from the 60s. And the very last uh, principle in that whole list is something called generalizability. And so mm -hmm. the idea of being able to sort of learn a skill in one setting and be able to practice that same skill in a different setting. So if I teach you, say, you know, to, I don't know, maybe just something simple, I teach you to wash your hands, you know, in your bathroom at home, um, you know, and you have, you have the sink and you have a hand towel and you have a pump soap, say something like that. Just, I don't know what you have, but I'm just making this, making this up. Um, and so you've learned to wash your hands that way, but then you go into another building and they, they don't have a, a, a towel. They have a hand dryer now, but you've never learned to mm -hmm. use the hand dryer. And so you leave that bathroom with wet hands because there was no towel or you wipe them on your it's shirt. It's so or funny that you're saying hand dryer right now. And I'll oh yeah. Why. Tell me why. As a kid, I was so scared about hand dryers. Oh, uh, yes, of course. <laughs> I'm like, oh, my goodness, what a good example. Yeah, totally. And there you go. And and, that, and so that actually incorporates both of those pieces, the adaptability and the sensory, right? So there's, you know, there, there's... I don't remember if AD specifically taught me to wash my hands. I don't remember if yeah. that was one thing I was taught. But yeah, that's just a child with fear I had. Yeah. It was so loud. Yeah. What about now? A lot less now. If I see a hand dryer that like it looks different than the ones I'm used to, I'm a little apprehensive, but yeah. I'm a whole lot calmer. Yeah. And I think I think some of them have improved a bit these days. Some of them are a lot quieter than they used to be back in the back in the even 90s. the super loud ones, I can handle them if I'm used to. Right. If you know the sound already and it's not a surprise, yeah. And I think that's important. That's an important piece too. So that's something else that they talk about on these reform pages is when kids, you know, like yourself, who might have been afraid of the the sound of a loud blow dryer. Some of those folks would say, "We shouldn't be trying to get you used to that sound. That because because it causes you fear, and therefore you express some negative emotions because you heard the sound and it scared you, and maybe you cry or whatever. I'm talking about you as a three year old now. Um, no, no, I, I hear not, you. not today. Um, and uh, but it'd be okay today too. Uh, but um, I actually um, have some opinions on this point, if I may. 
Yeah, please, please go ahead. I don't agree with that, actually. With what? With trying to protect us from anything that causes Okay, people. okay, yeah, tell me about that. The whole point of learning growing up, autistic, non-autistic, anything, is learning how to handle these types of situations. Sure, there are things that are completely unbearable for an autistic on a sensory scale, but we're not avoiding those. We're learning how to handle them. Maybe if it's hand dryers, wearing earplugs when you go into the bathroom. But even if you tried to avoid it, someone else in that same bathroom could use that hand dryer. So there are things that are unavoidable. And that's a good thing. That's, this goes back to adaptability. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, that's a really good point. And so the message that a lot of these folks are saying is, well, if you're, say, showing signs of discomfort, you're crying, you know, you're, you're, you're maybe, you know, maybe you're, you know, maybe you're engaging in a behavior, maybe you're hitting yourself or whatever, just to sort of get, get, make that sound go away. Like some people might hit their ears to sort of make the sound go away, um, mm-hmm. you know, um, um, because they just don't know how they don't, maybe because they, they're so young, they don't know where the sound actually coming from or whatever. When I was a kid, I always like to press on my ears just because the sound it created was just kind of cool. That's yeah, well, yeah, that would be, a, that, and that is a cool sound. And some kids will just do that just to muffle out sounds that are really loud. Mm-hmm. Um, but then, so if they see, if, 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 if uh, what I've read, some of the things I've been reading is if they see you put your hands on your ears and they see you crying, and they see you backing away from, say, the the dryer, then what I'm reading on these pages is that's communication from the child that they're not consenting to this education program and that we should back off. That's some of the messaging that we're hearing right now in some of these kind of reform discussions. When it comes to consent, I'm no legal expert. What I would say is if it's kind of a new experience for the kid, yeah, don't do it that day, but say, talk to the parents and say, one thing maybe we can work on if you agree is how to handle this. So that's why we do at least have a level of consent. Mm-hmm. Get that parent parental consent. And I think, and they, they talk about that, but they really, one of the big mo- movements right now, and I'm, and again, I'm not saying this is right or wrong. I'm just sort of tell, sharing you for information is that we should go beyond parental consent and move into child consent in some way and change our practices so the child is more comfortable somehow with our plan and you know and you know basically follow their lead i guess is a good way to put it i'm i'm a little bit unsure yeah. just because no child wants to be put into a situation where they're uncomfortable autistic not autistic doesn't matter true but a lot of times that's what we need in order to grow. Yeah. So if we went by child consent, I'm sure a lot of ch- children w- wouldn't consent to learning math mm-hmm. in school. Yeah. So uh, I'm a little iffy on that. Yeah, true enough. True enough. Yeah. And and had you not learned math in school, you wouldn't be where you are today. Literally. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah 100%. <laughs> Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, trying to think other things that, I, that I've kind of read about that people are saying, if you don't mind me making more suggestions, or we can change the subject too, if you'd like. 
Um, well, let's do a couple more. Sure. Um, so there's consent. There's kind of the sensory bit. Oh, there's um, and we've we talked about this a bit a couple of weeks ago when we chatted about uh, what I, I'm not and I'm not sure sort of what what the preferred term is these days. Stimming is that a fair term? That is uh, an absolutely fair term. Okay, yeah. so for stimming, some ABA folks don't call it stimming. Have you? I don't know if you've heard this other term they use. There's another term. No. It's called. I gotta, I gotta pronounce it right. Stereotopy. Um, what? what? Stereotopy. It's it, which is short for stereotypical behavior. And it, it's a strange term because when you think of stereotypical as a term, it basically means something that's the same about everybody, right? So, um, mm-hmm. um, and that's an assumption, right? And so this sort of assumption that most autistic people stim and so therefore they call it stereotypical behavior and so but the term alone is strange but more the point is the idea of sort of trying to teach kids either not to stim or trying to teach kids there's some situations it's okay to stim and some situations it's not this ties into another topic really well, which is masking. Right, yes, fair point. Um, I'm just going to give a little context to what stimming is for an autistic. And I've actually read this on the Instagram page, and I really like it. Okay. When you are holding back from stim for like a couple hours, and then you finally go to a space where you feel safe to stim, it feels like letting out a sneeze. Right. It's like a sense of relief. For me, the way I like to describe stimming, it's for us, it's a natural energy release. A lot of times we're not even fully in control. It's like being an intense daydream. Mm. It's like you can stop. It might take a little bit of prompting. Or for me, I just get too exhausted from stim that my body just naturally stops. Gotcha, gotcha. And this topic is a real tough one for me. Because we go into masking, which is autistics feeling the need, or in some cases, really needing to act neurotypical for the sake of the neurotypicals around them. Mm. It is true that it's useful in a few situations, like a job interview. Mm-hmm. I try not to stim too much there. But if it gets ingrained into us from childhood, it becomes a default every time we leave our house or even our room. We default to a mask without any control. Mm. You just have this gut instinct to almost like be on your best behavior. Mm -hmm. And to hold back a lot. It's like being a customer service representative every time you leave your house. I understand. Yeah. That's a good analogy. So teaching kids to stop or restrict stimming from an early age. I don't want I don't want to say that stimming is a bad thing, because it's really not. But it is difficult to do in some situations. A lot of people in the neurodiversity community would say, well, the community should just adapt to it. So just say, is this dim? This person is autistic. Just give them a few minutes to do their thing and they'll be good. Mm-hmm. And I'm absolutely for that acceptance. But 
the other part of me thinking it's not always going to be acceptable in daily life. So I'm super, super honest. The third secret word is Waterloo. Yeah. No, that makes sense. I mean, um, it makes sense that we should, we neurotypical folk, uh, should just accept that, you know, just like we accept someone, you know, scratching their nose or, or, or chewing on a pen or, you know, shaking their leg, you know, and, and, and we don't have, we don't seem to have a problem with that. So why would we have a problem with uh, those sorts of things? And yet, like you said, it should be acceptable, but it doesn't seem to be. It doesn't seem to be. So, and I'm not sure what the solution is. I want to say just acceptance, but that's, it's a big goal. Yeah. It, it's, it, it's a difficult goal to achieve. Yeah. And it's not where it's not where we are right now. So we're getting closer and closer, which is nice, but yeah. we're not quite there. Yeah, we're yeah. at the stage of optimal awareness. But me, as long as everyone in the OAC, we're trying to go at a step above to awesome acceptance. And so, what what do you think the difference is there? Easy awareness is knowing is being aware that these things happen, but acceptance is saying if your friend. If you're hanging out with your autistic friend and they have this gym, to not even feel uncomfortable about it, to just say, yeah, you do what you need to do, go for it. It's all good. Mm-hmm. And just nothing really feels awful. We're not there yet. I'm not there yet. Yeah. Now, do you think, do you think like it would help if, if say, you're in a room with neurotypical people and they said to you, if you want to stim, go for it. We don't mind. Or, or would you rather, like, you know what I mean? Like, how, how, how do we sort of, how do we as neurotypicals express that we're accepting? Uh, my friend at school did it perfectly well. She just said, hey, if you want to stim in front of us, go right ahead. No judgment. It's something where... You won't be able to change it right away because, at least for me, it's been ingrained in my brain to like not stim in public. But it might it might change slowly, slowly, bit by bit. Mm -hmm. It might. I'd like it to. Yeah, I think that'd be amazing. It has to do with acceptance of other from others and also acceptance from yourself as well. Yeah, for sure. So, with masking. Um, if you want to move into that now, or we can still talk about bring it on. Example, bring it on uh, with masking. So you said, uh, you know, in terms of self, in terms of stimming, anyway, that the kids, young kids, are often, or maybe maybe sort of taught at an early age, not to stim in front of other people and to do that in private. Yeah. It could be from ABA therapy. It could be from parents it could be from friends saying you look weird mm-hmm. and so do, do do you figure that you probably had some experience when you were a kid that sort of led you to start masking more absolutely yeah yeah parents are always worried about their kids making friends right fitting in because that is kind of the go-to way of making friends it's just fitting in 
Yeah. Yeah. So my parents, as well as a lot of other loving, caring parents, have probably told their kids, don't do this. The other kids in the program might not like it, something like that. What that immediately says to a kid is, I have to restrain myself. Mm-hmm. And these parents are not evil or bad or anything like that for saying this. They just want their kids to be friends. Yeah. But that's because they and also we having grown up in a world where universal acceptance is a concept. Mm-hmm. So that's why I'm actually going to say to your point about teaching kids to stop swimming in ABA, I'm going to go against that and just say it would be better for the rest of the world to be able to accept a stim. Yeah. This is, of course, within reason, where the stimming isn't violent, of course. It's not self-injurious behavior. That has to be stopped. Zero question. Mm -hmm. And this is also if the stimming will physically harm or disturb others. Mm. And I say that term loosely because some people might be disturbed by watching me flap. Right. I'd say, deal with it. Yeah. But like if I'm making a super, if my stim is like a super loud ear piecing screech, sure. that's a little bit different. Yeah. So it, it depends on the, the impact of the stim on others yeah. within reasonable. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. And that's fair. And I think people don't. It wouldn't be fair to ask everyone on the street just, sorry, I have to screech. You have to deal with it. That's not really a fair thing to say either. Yeah. No, I, I like that. I like that that sort of that sort of approach. Is is it hard to restrain yourself? That's the thing. No, and that's the problem. Mm. It's our it's our default. Our brain just automatically tells us, stop, cut it out, go. But once you get back into a safe space and you can stim. It's such a relieving feeling. And is is it in, is it intentional when you get back into that safe space? Like, do you sort of make yourself stim, or do you just just come out because you're in the safe place and now you're just you just go? It just comes out. It just comes out. Yeah. If I told myself I'm going to stim right now, yep. and I do the action, it's not stimming mm. because I've kind of made that demand upon myself. Right. That's not a real stim. A real stim is a natural release of energy. I think that's I think that's the that's that's the point that I don't think a lot of people know. A lot of people mm-hmm. think, you know, you're just, you know, and and forgive me if I'm just if I'm doing it wrong. I know you can do it anyway. But if I just sort of on my own move my hand back and forth, it's hard to see with my background. But if I'm on my own, move yeah. my hand, then I, that's just me moving my hand back and forth. I'm not actually That's really, just you making a conscious decision. Yeah, I'm not releasing any energy or doing anything. It's just me doing it. So that ABA there's no sorry, excuse me, not ABA. Stimming there is no conscious decision to start yeah. or stop. Yeah. Yeah. That's really, and that, and I think that's a really important thing to be thinking about, you know, especially if you do have a, maybe a child in a situation where, you know, it is bothering someone, but not hurting them, you know. There, ha- there has to be like some sort of threshold. Yeah. Like, if someone's a little disturbed by, again, I'll, I'll use the example again. If I'm slapping, yeah. I'm not making any painful noises. I'm not hurting myself. I'm not hurting other people. Yeah. If people around me just think it's weird, that's on them. Yeah. But if my stim is an ear-piercing screech, 
no, it's not fair to ask everyone to just adapt to that. Mm-hmm. Not fair to ask the entire public to say, oh, everyone now has to wear earplugs because it might be an autistic person's street and you just have to deal with it. No, that's not fair. That's cool. Finding that balance, I don't know. I don't know where the threshold is. Yeah, yeah. Anything else you could tell us just, just about masking in general? Yeah, masking could actually be a useful skill sometimes. But if it's a default, imagine working a 12-hour shift as a customer service rep every day of your life. Yeah. But I'm, I'd actually, if it's okay, like to switch into one more topic. Please do. Employment. Mm, great topic. Go. A lot of people might be thinking out there, employment autism, what's the big deal? Well, here's the thing. Oh my goodness, I'm sounding like my good friend when I say that. <laughs> <laughs> um, employment is a soft spot for autistics for two reasons, two scenarios. One, an employer might not hire someone just because they have autism, along the fear that it would cost them money in the sense of time or energy or resources to help this person through the workplace. Mm. And it would just be easier to hire someone else. Sure. So there's this unconscious fear of hiring someone on the spectrum because of that. But then there's another extreme, hiring someone just because they have autism out of pity. Mm. We don't need your stinking pity. Yeah. We want to be hired where we can make a meaningful difference. Yeah. Yeah. And if someone doesn't want to hire us for that reason, then don't bother. That's why I have so much respect for companies like Specialist Dern. Mm-hmm. Specialist Dern connects autistics with, with companies that can appreciate an autistic for what they do, for their expertise. And Specialist Dern makes the interview process so much easier. Like what they do is they, they hold like a six hour session with, with, with a group of those who are neurodiverse. Mm-hmm. It's not an interview or anything formal. They're just saying, here, we're going to build Lego robots today. And not only are we going to build them, we're going to program them too. Their idea is to see how we work. Mm-hmm. Do we work in teams? Do we follow the instructions? Do we go by the gut instinct? And then they just have like a 15-minute discussion with us on our skills. Not like drilling us with questions like an interview, but just saying, what are you comfortable doing? What are you not comfortable doing? How could you be assisted in the workplace? What would you need? I don't remember specifically if I was asked that last question, but I imagine it would be something they would ask. Mm. Oh, so you went, they, you, went, you went through this yourself? Yeah, I did. Oh, cool. I didn't end up getting employed from it, but that happens. Yeah. doesn't mean that the program's not good. Yeah. And then they go connect to the employers and they kind of rattle off what they learned from us. The employers still make a choice whether to hire them or not, but they make the process a lot easier. That's great. Is it is Specialist Stern like all different kinds of jobs or is it mostly related to one field or do you know? The type of jobs I've seen have varied a little bit. I've seen some financial jobs, I've seen some data jobs, I've seen some like computer engineering or computer science jobs. Cool. That's way over my head. <laughs> but usually I've seen it has something to do with STEM, like the STEM field or the business field. Right. And anything you'd want to, you know, you just want sort of 
Because I, I think that's a really good point. I mean, I think you, 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 you shouldn't just hire someone solely because they're autistic. You mm-hmm. know, so you can have that token autistic person working for you and say, I hire people with autism, you know. Oh my gosh, you're such a hero of <laughs> the world to without you. <laughs> for yeah. those who can't see my face right now, that is heavy sarcasm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, it's, it's, it's a really good point. Uh, because I think there are a lot of employers out there that are sort of trying to check a box, right? You know, and uh, yeah. It's the same thing with diversity. Yeah. Diversity is great. Diversity for the sake of diversity, why bother? Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. Anything you'd want sort of, you know, um, I'm thinking because a lot of the audience that we're talking to are people that are in ABA. Um, mm-hmm. So anything you'd kind of want, you know, maybe ABA practitioners to know that they may be able to help folks better when they're looking for jobs? This is a tough one for me just because I received ABA at a very young age where mm-hmm. the only job I was looking for was nap time. Actually, <laughs> incorrect, I hated nap time. But yeah, I'm just going to say I would want the ABA practitioner to put the emphasis on our unique skills mm. and how to translate that into skills that an employer would want. For example, you could see, I don't know, a special interest of an autistic mm. as an obsession, as something negative. Mm, Instead, yep. you can start thinking, ooh, they are really, really interested in trains. Maybe we can help them find a job that has something to do with trains, and we can use their special interest to show their passion, mm-hmm. which is something employers would really like to see. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And I've heard that, you know, autistic folk who do have these, you know, strong special interests, you know, it can be re- it can be really helpful in, in employ- employment situations because they can be really, really focused. Absolutely. They can be focused. They can notice tiny little details that other people just can't. This is not to say that only autistics are detail oriented, but it is a common thing. Yep. But a lot of times employers can't see that when all they're thinking is, oh, no. How much am I going to have to adapt to help this person? Mm-hmm. That fear factor gets in the way. Totally. And that's why I don't want to call it discrimination, just because I don't think it's a, it's purpose. Like, oh my god, we hate autistic. Mm-hmm. We're not going to hire them. Right. For me, that's what I call discrimination. Yeah. Here, it's just an employer thinking risk management, mm-hmm. which is a common theme for employers. Yeah. And that's why I have so much respect for co-op employers. Because they know that the student will need to be taught things. They know that the students are still learning, but yet they realize the potential. Mm. And that's kind of where I'd like to go with autistic people or neurodiverse people in general as well. Is more that kind of co-op sort of approach? That, that mindset, yes. I like that. I like that a lot. Yeah, that's really good. And I have seen some programs, some like employment programs for you know autistic folk and folks with other kind of neurodiverse uh, abilities kind of going on where they have like job coaches and they have people that kind of go into the employers and help them with things yeah yeah and so you know there's i think there's I, 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 and I, I think there's some value there because there, there's some folks that can kind of come in and take some of the burden off employers 
in the training and kind of do that on the job training with them. So there's that job coaching idea. Have you ever seen that the specialist turn to do anything like that? Or do you know? Well, I never got to the point where right. I was doing any job training, so I can't speak for this experience. Right. But probably something like that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Cool. Well, maybe before we go, I, I wouldn't mind hearing just a little bit about what you do. First off, how, how you how you became a board member on the OAC, sure. uh, and which is the Ontario Autism Coalition, for those who are listening, and what you do uh, as a board member and as a member of that coalition. Uh, I won't be able to go super in-depth here, but, well, first off, it doesn't help when at the time the president of the OAC was a family friend. That does uh, not, that, sorry, that doesn't hurt. That's what I meant to say. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Well, connections are good. But in this case, I think the people who are on the board before me, I think what I was doing was being recognized. My articles uh, being interviewed for local news sources. Mm-hmm. my presence at a few protests as well. Mm-hmm. I think that was being recognized. And I know the board did want to have some autistic self-advocates because that's a very important viewpoint, especially for an autism organization. Absolutely. So I think all that combined is what got me the offer. And for what I do, I'm actually co-chairing the adult services oh. uh, working group. Cool. So things that we're discussing are housing, how can autistics live independently, mm. employment's a big one, post-secondary education. Yep. And one thing I've done is I've actually made a little bit of a social media piece. Oh. You can see this on my Instagram and my LinkedIn yeah. as well, where I, I got some feedback from some other autistics. I asked them to kind of talk about some of their employable skills. Neat. And I made a, a completely anonymous infographic highlighting some candidates for job positions. And then I said, oh, by the way, all these candidates actually have ASD. Does it even matter? Very good. I like that. Exactly. So I was going in that direction, kind of like, oh, wow, here's some great candidates. <gasps> they all have ASD. Why should I even matter? <laughs> totally. What's uh, what's your Instagram called? I'm actually going to point you toward my LinkedIn. So my Instagram, uh, okay. although it's public, I keep it to like, like friends only don't want everyone listening to my podcast to have it. Understand, yeah. But my LinkedIn is just my name, Philip Lerner. Perfect. I'll check it out. Yeah, no, that's that's cool. It's good to have. Not everything needs to be shared with the world. Mm-hmm. I don't need uh, my whole world on my Instagram. <laughs> right on. Cool. Well, before we go, I mean, I think you've spent a good 45 minutes uh, chatting, which has just been wonderful. Uh, my pleasure. Is there anything else you'd like to sort of share with the, the listeners before we end things? Yeah. I'm just going to say we're all trying to make that jump from awareness to acceptance. And it's not going to happen right away. But if you do see an autistic stimming, like maybe one of your friends stimming at one of your hangouts, if you do have any, if it does make you feel uncomfortable, put the question in your head. Why is it uncomfortable? Hmm. Just start to recognize these unconscious biases. Mm. And it's a long process. Just continue working at it. And we're going to continue working on it ourselves, working on self-acceptance, just being okay with doing mm-hmm. in public. It takes all of us. It's not a one-sided endeavor. Mm-hmm. 
I love that. That's really, that's great. I think that's a great message for folks. Well, Phil, thanks again for being on the podcast. It was really cool. My pleasure. Um, we look forward to chatting with you again in the future. Thank you for having me.